Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. This is our scripture reading for the day. This is John 17, 1 through 6, and then verses 20 through 24. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment for reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in this moment of silence and reflection, we come before you with a variety of life experiences, with different perspectives. Come before you hopeful and joyful, longing and sad, angry, come before you believing and trusting or cynical and bitter. Some of us remembering a time when we believed these things and you seem like you were so close to us and now you seem a million miles away and we're wondering what happened to you or maybe what happened to us. But however we find ourselves in this very moment, help us to see that we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, none of us has it all together. Each of us is full of contradictions, complexity, 
a beautiful mess. And at the same time, you see us in all our contradiction and complexity, in the ways we get it, in the ways we don't get it, in the ways we're really good people, in the ways we're not that good of people at all. You see it all. And your response is to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to convince us. Convince us that you love us this much. Teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed. And send us out to be agents of your renewal wherever we go. We pray these things in your name. Amen. When I woke up this Friday for my usual swim, you know, one of the things that changed this week is we had changed the time, uh, the time, you know, not the time zone, but the, what do you call it? What's it called when you change the time category? One hour. We're one hour different is what it was. That's what it was. And so it was early. 5.45 came early. It was still really dark when my swim buddy, John, neighbor, came by. John, if you're watching, good morning. I was hoping he was going to say he's too tired and we're going back to bed. We got to La Jolla Cove and it was still dark. And if you think it's scary swimming with sharks when you can see them, try doing it when you can't. You couldn't see the half mile buoy we were about to swim to. But you could see on the far end of the horizon a light. And so we said, let's just swim toward that light and we know we'll be going generally in the right direction. You know, right now... And sure enough, we did get there, thankfully, and we made it back. That's how I get to tell you the story right now. Right now, it feels like we're in a really dark time. I mean, it's felt like that for a long time for many of us. For all of us, at least for the last year with COVID, with all of the complexity of it, all the uncertainty of it, the economic insecurity, the physical fear. Many of us have lost loved ones and those close to us. It feels like a dark time. And then you add on top of that the death of George Floyd and others. And now a shooting in Atlanta, leaving Asian American brothers and sisters dead. In a country that's reeling with violence. It feels like dark times. I mean, sure, there are glimmers of hope. And you see that vaccination route rise and rise and rise, that percentage. Sometimes, you know, with a good lament or a good night of unity, you feel like things might come together one day. But by and large, as I meet with you and have conversations, and as I reflect on my own life, it feels like dark times. And I want you to know that the scripture that we just heard was something that Jesus prayed for us in a dark time. He was literally going to go to the cross the next day. There were moments in this evening when he would say, Father, I know you love me. If there's another way to rescue the world, let's do it. He's dining at a table as he has at sometimes drawn crowds of thousands and thousands and thousands. And it's down to just 12 people there around that table with him that night, one of whom will leave early to betray him unto death. And it's the, in the midst of all of that We ask ourselves, when it feels like you can't see, when it feels like you don't know which way to go, when it feels like it's getting darker and darker, what gives you hope in your life? When you don't know what direction to go, but you know you need to get going, how do you choose a path? And Jesus in his prayer outlines this great vision for the world in the midst of the darkness and the sadness. And he says, God's glory 
will be revealed through our unity. And the way you unlock the whole thing is through love. God's glory will be revealed to the whole world through our unity, the way we come together. And the key to unlocking the whole thing is love. Let's unpack that. First, God's glory. N.T. Wright teaches us that the word for glory that comes from this Hebrew word, it has this connotation of weight, weightiness, heaviness. You can't ignore it. It's the thing in the center of the room around which everything else gravitates and rotates. It's weighty. It matters. And God's glory spills over in two different directions throughout Scripture. On one hand, it talks about his authority and his rule. God's desire and ability to run the world and to put it back to rights where it's broken. Paradoxically, God gives this glory to humans. In Romans chapter 8, it talks about how we are image bearers of God's glory to be participants in a new creation that's on its way. His authority, his rule. The other way that God's glory spills over is by talking about this visibility of God's glory. The dazzling brilliance of God's presence. We see this in the tabernacle in Exodus 40. We see this in the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. And in all instances, the big idea is God's presence is so brilliantly, dazzlingly intense that you can't get near it. You can't get too close. You couldn't handle it. The weight of God's glory would be too heavy and it would crush you. And yet we find throughout scripture that this God that created the whole world did not act like a divine watchmaker, just setting all the dials and all the mechanics and then letting it go its own direction. God is not merely the Greek, you know, the Greek idea of the unmoved mover that can move all things, but you can't move God. But God is not passionate or involved or interested in the way things go. Not at all. Throughout scripture, we find a God who desires that God's image bearers, humanity, would see his glory and live. Now we use this word glorious, whether you're a church-going person or not. I went on a bike ride with my buddy Kenny on Thursday. Kenny, if you're watching, welcome. Good to see you. Helenka, hello. Donovan. And again, we took off early in the morning. We did this. We rode the ferry boat across the harbor. We rode around the entire San Diego Bay, got home, got back to to our place by the Star of India. And as we were having a coffee and a breakfast burrito, we were actually waiting for our food. And this little stingray came flitting around just underneath the surface of the San Diego Bay. And several yards beyond the stingray, there were these two huge sea lions that were just playfully dancing together in the water. And at about that moment, the sun's rays began to peek through the morning dawn and illuminated, bathed the entire bay in this golden hour morning light. And I looked at Kenny and I said, it's glorious. And he said, absolutely. It's glorious. You see, scripture teaches us that nature can reveal something about the glory of God. Psalm 19 says, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And then it goes on to say, there are no words, there is no voice but the words go out around the world and the voice is heard everywhere, right? There's no words and no voice, but the voice is heard everywhere. And I think what it's getting at is, as we described and, and talked about a couple weeks ago, 
Nature reveals the glory of God in a way that is dazzling and brilliant and beautiful and arresting, and yet it's incomplete. It's communication, but it's nonverbal communication. It can be misinterpreted. And scripture goes on to say that God's glory is even more fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's this place in John chapter 14 where Jesus' friends are all around him. These are people who have walked with him, taught with him, ate with him, you know, all of that for years. And they said, Jesus, you're amazing. Just show us the glory of God and that'll be enough for us. And his response was, how long have I been with you? Don't you know when you look at me, you see the Father because the Father and I are one. In other words, Jesus is what God has to say to this world. You can see the dazzling beauty of a sunrise, but you can see the beauty of God's character in Jesus. A sunrise will not walk toward you and put its arms around you. A sunrise will not die for your brokenness and mine. But Jesus did. Jesus moves towards us, and in him you see God's glory. Now, here's the confounding part of this, as if that wasn't confounding enough. God's glory is partially revealed in nature, powerfully but incomplete. God's glory is revealed in the character of Christ, and somehow God desires that his glory would be made known to the world through you. As one pastor said, does that take you up high enough that it gives you a nosebleed? Are you following what he's saying here? I desire to show my glory, not through the mighty of the majestic oceans and the beauty of the mountains, not only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I desire to show the world my glory through you. I get the image of, you know, it's like a projector. If we hook this computer up to a projector and the photons of that light need something to land on in order to show the image, a projector with a screen. And I wonder if God's kind of saying, I want to project my image of glory throughout this world. And I call you to be the screen. I want to project it onto you. But it's not just you individually. It's the whole faith community. Now, I know that analogy breaks down because the projector doesn't work without the screen. I'm pretty convinced that God could do God's work with or without you and me. But that makes the miracle even more amazing. Christopher J.H. Wright in his book, The Mission of God, says, The mission of God is to renew all things and all people. The mission is God's. The miracle is God invites you and me to join in. Who might God be placing in your life? for you to be good news to them. What does it look like this week in a world that is reeling with so much pain to be a person of peace? How do you do this? Through unity. One of the things I'm so grateful for about our church, we say every Sunday that you are welcome here, whether you're wealthy or poor, every ethnicity and culture and orientation, you're wanted and welcomed in this church. Now, that's a vision, right? They say a goal without a plan is just a dream. That's a vision. That's a hope. But what I'm thrilled about is when I look around at our community group on Zoom on Wednesday night, or when I look at my calendar of conversations I have throughout the week, that we really are an ethnically diverse community. We are an educationally diverse community. We have people with advanced degrees and grown-ups who have not finished high school-level education loving and learning from one another. One another. 
I remember one time preaching a sermon like this, and it's always kind of an odd thing to preach a sermon like this. We have some of our friends here live. Most people are online. And at one point, I saw a car on the street right here on 30th Street behind the camera, behind the chairs, and this car stops. A lot of cars stop. People are coming and going to brunch and all that. But this car stops, and the guy sits on his car, and he listens for five minutes. And then he decided to walk in. This is the opposite of someone listening for five minutes and desiring to walk out. So it felt really good as the preacher, as the pastor. And he walks in, he sits down, he listens to the whole thing, the sermon. He says afterward, you know, I don't normally understand what they're saying at church, but I understood every word you said. And I think God's trying to wake me up. He said, I'm, I don't know anything. I don't know if I'm a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Christian or I have, I'm just no idea. Can we start meeting together? So we started meeting over here at the cafe on the corner. And I realized a couple things at that point. One is we are completely different in terms of our political affiliations. We have different views on the past president. We have different views on the insurrection at the Capitol. We have different views on what's wrong with our country and what the solution should be. I also realize we have a lot of common ground. We have hopes and dreams and fears. We have a need for God to break through and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And I realized at that point we were coming together because we could stand on a lot of common ground. That's what we do as a church. It does not mean that all things are equally true at all times or that important topics and issues don't matter when we disagree. Not at all. It means the unifying principle of our life together is not how did you vote or what kind of food do you like or what sort of music do you listen to or where did you get your degree or how much money do you make. The unifying principle is a God who calls all people to God's self who's created us all in God's image and likeness, who has died for all of us in Christ, has risen from the dead, and says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Friends, if you believe that, you have a lot of common ground to stand on to meet with people with whom you disagree. And friends, if you're questioning things, if you're investigating Christianity, if you're thinking about what it might mean to actually believe these things, consider, what would it be like if that was true? What would it mean if the God of this whole universe holds you in the palm of his hand and says, I know you and I love you with all of the ways you get it and all the ways you don't get it, and I'll be with you? That kind of grace, that kind of acceptance, that kind of love, now you have a resource for unity with others. Unity, on one hand, is an act of obedience. It's living into God's calling. One theologian, dear friend named Aaron Keeker, professor in Illinois, said unity is a gift. We receive it. We embrace it. We live it out. We practice it. In other words, unity is not something that you and I can manufacture. Unity is something that is created in the very character and the workings of God. In the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons of the Trinity have been loving each other throughout all eternity, and that creative love boils over into humanity. So so unity is not something we manufacture. It's a gift we receive. It's something we live into. It's something we reflect toward one another. It's something we have to tend and work at. I think this is why the early church writers said things like, Be sure to maintain the bonds of unity and peace. you got to maintain it. If you don't maintain your car for long, your car is not going to be driving you very far. 
If you don't actively work toward maintaining your most important relationships, they decay, they erode. We have to foster and intentionally work at cultivating unity with one another. It's also an act of mission. Missiologist and theologian Leslie Newbegin went to India to share the gospel with the people there in the mid-1900s. He wanted to do it in a way that was sensitive and thoughtful and relational. And when he arrived, he realized that the locals in India were laughing at him because he was proclaiming a God who's calling all people to God's self. And they would say, I'm sorry, the Methodists told, he was an Anglican preacher, the Methodists told me not to talk to you. And the week before that, the Baptists told me not to talk to them. Why should I even listen to this idea of God when you all can't even get along with each other? But conversely, the unity of the Christian community in a world that is increasingly fractured and tribal, in a world that refracts racialized violence, political polarization, scapegoating, unity in the church begins to be a sign to the watching world that Jesus is actually up to something in our midst. It begins to be a sign to the watching world that God is at work. That's why when we become official members of the church, you hear one of the vows we make is, I promise to promote the things that promote unity, purity, and peace among the congregation. It means we don't talk about one another. We talk to one another. You know, there's a part in the Bible where it says, as iron sharpens iron, one person sharpens another. And people put that on t-shirts and things like that. It's kind of this beautiful idea of like, you make me better, I make you better. and We all grow together. It's great. Until you think about how iron actually sharpens iron. Through heat and friction. That's how iron sharpens iron. So actually in our disagreements and in our arguments and in our differences, those are not signs that we're doing it wrong. Those are actually signs that we're doing it right because we can have honest conversation with one another in love. It means we pay attention in society. Now, first I was talking about the church. Now I'm just talking about in society. It means we pay attention to how we think about others. There's a place in Luke chapter 6 where Jesus says, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth will speak. Or there's a very common saying, you know, watch your thoughts for they become your words. Watch your words because they become your actions. Watch your actions because they become your habits. Watch your habits because it becomes your character. Watch your character because it becomes your destiny. But it all starts with your thoughts. So being someone who seeks for unity in society means you actually take inventory of the way you think about others. Brene Brown, professor, lecturer, author, uh, she's a specialist in courage and shame and vulnerability and empathy. She talks about dehumanization. She wrote about it in 2018, and she just revisited it in one of her most recent podcasts. And she says dehumanization is the most significant driver of insurrection, and it always starts with language. She says, she quotes this, um, the chair of philosophy at Emmanuel College, Michelle Mays, and she says, Mays defines dehumanization as the psychological process of demonizing the enemy 
making them seem less than human and hence not worthy of human treatment. Dehumanizing often starts with creating an enemy image in your mind. As we take sides, lose trust, and get angrier and angrier, we not only solidify an idea of our enemy, but also start to lose our ability to listen, communicate, and practice even a modicum of empathy. How does this happen? Mays explains that most of us believe that people's basic human rights should not be violated, that crimes like murder, rape, and torture are wrong. Successful dehumanizing, however, creates moral exclusion. Groups targeted based on their identity, their gender, ideology, skin color, ethnicity, religion, age, are depicted as less than or criminal or even evil. The targeted group eventually falls out of the scope of who is naturally protected by our moral code. This is moral exclusion and dehumanization at its core. Do you hear what she's saying? She's saying we good people all agree that it is wrong to exclude people. We all agree on that. We all agree that it's wrong to do violence. We all agree that it's wrong to hurl daggers and arrows at other people. But the key word is people. What dehumanizing allows us to do, when you can take a people group or a person and convince yourself that they're an animal, or they're a pig, or they're an idiot, or they're something that's not human, now you can sling all the arrows you want and still keep your moral code in your own mind. And it's insidious. We see it individually. We see it in politics. We see it in our country. And we reap the whirlwind. He says, are you aware of the way you think about others? Brene Brown goes on to say, when we engage in dehumanizing rhetoric or promote dehumanizing images, we diminish our own humanity in the process. When we reduce immigrants to animals, it says nothing at all about the people we're attacking. It does, however, say volumes about who we are and our integrity. And then later she says, shame, dehumanization, humiliation, and name-calling destroys us. It destroys our family, and it will destroy our country if we don't start making different choices. And here's Jesus 2,000 years ago saying, my glory, my beauty, my brilliance, my authority, my renewal will be made known to the world in the way that you pursue unity. So then it means not only taking economy of your own mind and your thoughts, but then to take note of how you speak about others. Rene Girard, and I do think it's a little funny, we just, we just quoted Brene Brown and now we're quoting Rene Girard. I don't, they probably knew each other before the end of his life. He is a French historian, philosopher, social scientist at Stanford, brilliant thinker, passed away six years ago. I get to spend some time with him, but he's really, he's um, known for actually many things if you Google Rene Girard, but one of them is what he describes as the scapegoat mechanism. So the point here is beware of scapegoating and we all do it. He says, scapegoating is actually the foundation of human society. And here's what he says. When we have differences with one another in society, when we have two different factions that can't get along together, one way of solving the problem is to find someone to blame for all the conflict that all the rival coalitions can unite against. This unfortunate person may or may not be guilty. All that's required for the scapegoating solution to work 
is that his guilt is universally agreed upon and that when he is punished or expelled from the community, he will not be able to retaliate. The proof of his guilt is found in the peace that now returns to the community obtained by virtue of the unanimity against him. He says, but beware. If you scapegoat someone, it's always a third party that will be aware of it. It won't be you because you will believe you're doing the right thing. You will believe you are either punishing someone who is guilty or fighting someone who's trying to kill you, but you are never the one who is scapegoating. He says, this is a story old as time. You see this online. You see this on Facebook. You see this in our country in the past year when our Asian American brothers and sisters have been accused of somehow starting or being responsible for the pandemic. And as soon as that happens, they're the problem. And people think we need to take care of them or get rid of them or punish them or exclude them. You're seeing the them thing happen, and you're seeing it now. Many of you, it's not them, it's you, and you're feeling it personally. And I want you to know this church stands with you. And we don't stand for scapegoating. You know what it means? It means not only how you think about people, how you talk about people. Of course, then it means how you act toward other people. Now, the no-brainer is do no violence and do no harm. We've already talked about how it's insidious, so we always have to take inventory of ourselves. But then it also means that if you have the luxury, I have the luxury of walking away from racialized issues in our city. I can go about my life, I can go to the beach, I can play baseball with my kids, I can do any number of things and not even feel it because of the skin I live in as an Anglo male. This happens to be how I was born. It's up to me to choose to feel the pain of my brothers and sisters. And when I do, I actually become more human. And so do you. This is why on Tuesday night we're getting together in a group that is led by our Asian American brothers and sisters. I didn't walk in as a pastor leader saying, great idea, I've got it from here. I said, you're leading something and our church wants to be a part of it. And we're going to lament and mourn and pray and shake our fists and be with one another on Tuesday night. This is why we walk together. God's glory will be revealed through our unity, and the key to unlocking the whole thing is love. Now, here's the thing about love. We all think we know love, and none of us do. (laughs) If we walk down 30th Street right now and go to the local cafe or the brunch spot and say, hey, I'm doing a study on love, how do you define love? What do you think you'd hear? You'd hear, love is the intensely beautiful feeling you have when you're with another person. You hear things like, don't be with the one, how how do they say it? Don't love the one that you can live with, love the one that you can't live without, right? Now, both of those are probably true, but they're incomplete because those perspectives on love are primarily about what the other person can do for you. But scripture actually defines love. Jesus actually defined love when he said, greater love has nobody than the one who lays down their life for a friend. So love at its core is not what you can get out of the relationship, but what you can bring to it. I think that's one of the main differences between lust and love. Whole other sermon, whole other talk. But I would make the case this way. Many of us say we love San Diego. We love North Park. We love our community. But many of us really just lust after it because we want to take what we can get from it. We want to enjoy it for its beauty and its fun, but we don't give anything into it. 
And Jesus says, why don't you actually love your community and pour yourself out on behalf of it? How do we do this? This summer is coming up, as you know. I'm so excited. We just got the first day of spring, three months till summer. That also means it's wedding season. I don't know what weddings are going to look like. I don't know if there'll be five people or 50 online or not. I do know that many brides and grooms will request that we read from 1 Corinthians, where it talks about love. This book where Paul is writing to the early church, and he says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not keep a list or a record of wrongdoings. Love always hopes and always trusts. Now, that's a beautiful poem about love. But Paul did not primarily write that poem so that married people could recite it on their wedding day about married love. He primarily wrote that to an ethnically diverse church in the middle of the city of Corinth that was trying to figure out how to love each other amidst all their differences. And he's not talking about the love between two people when they make a covenantal promise to one another. He's talking about the love of God toward us in Christ. And here's the point. When you see that God's love toward you is patient, when God's love toward you is kind, when God's love toward you is never exhausted in his forgiveness, when God's love toward you hopes for you more than you even hope for yourself, when you see that kind of love from God, now you have a resource to go and love other people in the same way. You begin to say things like, how could I possibly forgive them? And you go, oh, God, as you have forgiven me, help me to forgive them. How could I possibly move toward them? They're so different and so rebellious and so cantankerous and so difficult. And you go, oh, <laughs> how many times am I that way toward God? As you love me, help me to love them. But the fullest expression we see is in Christ. I started off by telling you about swimming and focusing on that little light toward the horizon. And it got me in a good general direction. But once the sun actually came up, I didn't need that little light anymore because I could see by the light of the sun itself. I could see the whole landscape. I could see the water. I could see under the water. I could see clear as day because it was daytime. The sun was shining. God says, my glory will be revealed in the way you have unity together. The key to unlocking it is love. That's the light. But now the sun is shown. That love is not a principle or an idea or the topic of poems. Love is actually a person and his name is Jesus. If you want to see how God loves you, look at him. And as you do, reflect that love out toward one another. See how he moves toward you even now. See how he's not repulsed by your brokenness or your sadness or your sorrow, but he's actually tender toward it. See how he never gives up on you so you can persevere in unity with others. And as you do, the world will never be the same. This is what changes the world. This is what transforms society. And as you do, you become more alive. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray now that you would give us grace to hear whatever you have to say to us. Give us courage to follow you wherever you lead. Help us to embody your very healing unity in this world, especially as a time such as this. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.